think I figured it out. We figured it out. We are going live. Okay. Hello, Leah. Hello, Michelle and Leah. I see you're on Facebook. And we are now finally live on YouTube also. Baruch Hashem. Okay, Rabbi Say. Good evening. Welcome back. Today we are going to once again be delving into the amazing work called Shar HaBetochen, the Gates of Trust. And we're going to be talking about Betochen. Trust in Hashem. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge and thank our special sponsor, Michelle Khan, who, with this class, seeks to celebrate the life of her recently departed brother, Michal Kalman ben Svi Mordechai, in honor of his second yardsight, which was observed just a couple of days ago on Rosh Chodesh Ir. May the Neshama have an Aliyah, and may we all celebrate and share only Simachot, only happy and good occasions together. So we haven't been learning about trust for a while, but I'm hopeful that uh, many of you are still immersed and involved in this, in this very special study. And you might even remember what we spoke about in the, previous, in the previous episode. But just in case you don't. We've been talking about the concept of relying on God when it comes to, quote, spiritual service. That is to say, our avodat Hashem, our obligation towards God. The concept of religion can be simplified into one word, relationship. A relationship between us and God. Religion facilitates that relationship. Now, because we believe that our religion is true, we necessarily believe not only that there is a God, but that He cares about us. And He wants a relationship with us. Please don't ask me why. Nobody knows why. Nobody can really understand why God wants a relationship with us. I don't even want a relationship with myself sometimes. Why would God want a relationship with me? Why does He want a relationship with you and, and, and eight, eight, 8 billion other humans? Why are we important to God? Why do we make a difference? That's something that has to be taken on faith, not rationale. But that's what Torah teaches, that God cares about each and every one of us. Not only does He care about our welfare, He cares about the innermost thoughts if we're greedy, if we are hateful, if we're judgmental in a negative way. That grieves God. If we're loving, compassionate, sensitive, spiritually minded, living with God consciousness, God cares. And that's the currency of this relationship. <laughs> now, the currency of the relationship goes a little deeper because it's not just about having a relationship, but it's actually about making a dwelling place for God here in our humble abode. And that's a subject for another night. So, if God gave you a job, you can't give it back to Him. That is to say, God says He has expectations of you. And you'll say, Ah, God, you know what? I'll, I'll leave it in your hands. I shouldn't eat any chametz on Pesach, for example. You know, I'll, I'll make some minor effort, but I trust that you'll make sure I won't eat anything I shouldn't eat on Pesach. And if there's chametz out there, it won't end up on my table. And if it ends up on my table, God, I fully rely on you. You'll make sure it doesn't end up in my mouth. Oh, that's actually ridiculous. Why? Simple, because God gave you and I, assuming that we're Jewish, I don't know who's watching, I don't know who you are, but if you're Jewish, I know with absolute certainty and believe with 1,000% conviction that God didn't want you to eat chametz and didn't want me to eat chametz on Pesach. So I did all kinds of things, various precautions, so that I might not, heaven forfend, 
eat something I shouldn't have eaten on Pesach. And now I hope and pray that I didn't eat something I shouldn't have eaten on Pesach. I can't be sure. But I'm required to make all those efforts. I have to go that extra mile. I can't say, well, you know, if God wants me to do the mitzvahs, so he'll provide. He'll make it happen. That is profoundly wrong-headed. In fact, one could argue that betachen, when it comes to service of God, namely building the relationship, is entirely inappropriate. And today we're going to revisit the subject. And the great Rabbeinu Bachaya is going to shed a great deal of light on the nuances of trust in betachen. Because he will argue that whilst the aforementioned is true and that betochen does not apply to the things that we're supposed to know how to behave or at least we're able to find out how we should behave. So don't rely on God. Make it happen. Take charge. Yet, there is a certain point where we are allowed to let go and betochen becomes fully appropriate. And that really is where we begin today. So if you're following along in the Kihat edition, it's on page 172. The title on top says, Room for Trust in Divine Service. Okay, let's get right into it. Says the Chavis And I'm going to read in its original Hebrew as we've been doing. And I'm going to try to translate faithfully. And I'm doing that even though we don't have the gate of trust in its original language. Because it was written in Hebreo-Arabic and I don't understand that language and I can't study the Shara Betachen in its original. But I can, thankfully, and you can study it in Hebrew and it's been translated many times into English. I'm... Not so sure they always get it right when it's translated into English. We're going to talk about that today. But we're going to comb through the language employed by Rabbeinu Bahaya very carefully. Because as I've mentioned upteen times in this series, because it's the right thing to do. Because a, a, a person, a Torah sage, and a book of this caliber is deserving of our attention and our respect. And that means there aren't extra words. And there aren't superfluous sentences. Even though it seems that there are. And it means that we don't fully understand it until we figure out that there aren't. And that's kind of what we're going to do tonight. Aval. Masharoi livtoyach olov. However, however, what or in the area of service where it is appropriate? Roi means appropriate, suitable. If you will, you could translate it as proper. I think appropriate is a far better word. So where it is appropriate or fitting. For us, livtoach a love to rely on God, who gmar maisei ho'avaydah. The gmar maisei means the final results. The final results. The gmar maisei ho'avaydah. The completion of the act of the mitzvah. That's where we have to have trust or betachen. This comes achar bechirata after choosing to perform the mitzvah, belev shalom. And the word belev shalom is translated as with a whole heart or wholeheartedly. And that's a reasonable translation. Veneman. And it's funny, I looked in a number of different translations of the word Neman, 
And in one I got sincere. And in the Kiat edition, they use the word genuine. And elsewhere, I found the idea of Nemon being faithfully. I'm not sure what's most appropriate. This is a decision we made wholeheartedly and we did it in a manner that is sincere. I actually think sincere is the best translation. What what does sincerity mean? It means when I do something in a way which is honest. I'm doing it with integrity. I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing because I believe it's the right thing to do and not because there are other considerations. So this is a sincere act. This, this mitzvah act has to be a genuine act. And then he says, v'haskama, an agreement, v'hishtadlut, and significant effort invested, bivor levov, in a heart that is pure. In a pure-hearted fashion. Oh, and the chavana l'shmoa gadol and the intention for his great name. So, of course, this whole sentence seems to me a little bit superfluous. Like, what is the point here? What you are supposed to trust Hashem in is gmar the end result. Okay. No, no, no. He says, hey, do you understand what the end result is? It's achar bechirata after you chose to do it. Okay. No, not just any choosing. After you chose, believe shalom, wholeheartedly. And you did it in a genuine manner. And you resolved to do it. And you tried to do it with a pure heart. And how is that different from it? integrity or sincerity or, 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 or as uh, they called it, Genuinely. And a kavana and an intention, l'shmar gadol. So this is going to be our, our, our first port of, of calling. We're going to try to figure this out. First of all, let's start from the top. Masharoi livtoyach alov, what is appropriate, suitable, or proper to trust in Hashem. When we say that it is appropriate, suitable, proper, what do we refer to? So the toiv halavonoin gives us a fascinating statement. He says, and I quote in Hebrew, Bekabalat scharam va'anshom. Literally, that translates in receiving reward or punishment. In plain English, consequence or culpability. That is to say, I have to be responsible for my actions. If I choose not to be responsible for my actions, um, I'm behaving irresponsibly and possibly much worse. So let's say, let's just just use a a terrible example. Terrible thing, an accident. Somebody loads something onto the back of a flatbed truck and they were supposed to go through a whole series of checks to make sure that this very heavy and potentially dangerous object is in place. And it could be bothered. Whatever, wrap the chain around, it's going to be fine. But it wasn't fine. And then, Rahman al-Islam, God forbid, on the highway, this object becomes, gets loose, dislodged, and it flies off the back of the flatbed. Heaven forfend what this could cause. Who's responsible? So the person says, well, what do you want from me? It's an act of God. I mean, like, you know, uh, it, didn't, it didn't have to fall. It was a couple of loose screws. It, it could have lasted. I mean, you see, for the first 20 minutes of the trip, it lasted. And I was almost like off the highway. I, I would have been fine. It was just there was a gust of wind. There was traffic, and I, I was delayed. You see, so, okay, I can't be responsible. That's not really going to wash. That argument is, is, is entirely faulty. You mean you are responsible? You're culpable. You didn't follow protocol. These laws, these rules are made for a reason. So, what if somebody followed all the rules, did everything that he or she was supposed to do, 
And then there was a circumstance that's unforeseen. Something happened. And because something happened, unbeknownst to the person who took all the precautions, somebody was horribly hurt or worse. Who's culpable? Who's responsible? Who has to bear the consequences? The answer is, in that case, if all precautions were taken, n- nobody's going to be responsible. See, that's, that's in God's hands. That's God's responsibility. All right. When can you put it into God's responsibility? When you did everything you were supposed to do. You can't argue and say, well, you know, if this person wasn't supposed to die or wasn't supposed to get hurt, then they wouldn't have been on the highway then. And it would have worked out different because God's in control and I can't do something other than God's will. There is truth to that. But you are responsible. And you have to bear the consequences. Should you do something well thought? Not only well thought of, but well carried out. And as a result, something good happens. Do you get credit? Yeah. I didn't do anything. Sure I did. I made the decision to do what I thought was right based on my understanding of Torah. I threw myself into it every ounce of wherewithal. And in fact, the good thing happened. Do I get, if you will, rewarded? The answer is yes. That's the crux of the matter here. The crux of the matter here is, do I take charge or do I let go? And the answer is, if there's consequences, for me, that means I was supposed to take charge. If good things happen, but I just happen to be in the right place at the right time and have no clue of what's going on, but something amazing happened because I just happened to be there. That's very nice. But I can't get any credit for it, per se. I didn't do anything. This is the key to understanding what we're about to say now. The question is, a person will say, well, I want to trust in God. Okay, trust in God. It's, it's, not, it's not the right thing to do. That's not the thing for which there is a positive consequence. Or perhaps there might be a negative consequence for doing the wrong thing. But if I trust in God when it's appropriate to trust in God, then, then there are consequences. And if I don't trust, there's also consequences. So that's the key to understanding like, like what, what, what motivates us here. The answer is, I want to know what's right to do. If it's right or wrong, there are consequences, one way or the other. So, what is right, what is proper, meaning for, which, for what there's consequences. In simple terminology, reward or punishment. Is the end result. What does it mean, the end result? What are we referring to? So the Toiv Halavanon, in his commentary, says the end result is Gmar Asiat Hamitzvah The consequences go both ways. Good consequences mean something I get credit for, positively speaking. In, in simple terminology, rewarded. Bearing responsibility or having to assume the consequences that happened, that's, that means I did something which was inappropriate. And if I did something inappropriate, that's a big problem. Not a good thing. So this is the question. Do I bear responsibility for the final result? I did everything I could have done. I tried as hard as I could, and it either happened or didn't. Is that in my hands? Or can I say, I did my best. I tried. I trust in Hashem. Whatever was supposed to happen is going to happen, and I can't be anxious about it. In fact, as we learned many, many an episode ago, betochen means perfect tranquility. I live with certainty. I leave it in God's hands. I have nary a care. I did my part. <laughs> and if it's not meant to be, it won't be. And if, and, it, and if it is meant to happen, and that's not a good thing, it was something I was trying to avoid, I did my part. 
That's where Betochen begins. Betochen begins where I actually don't have a responsibility. I don't bear culpability, and I can't get credit because it's in God's hands. That's where I stop taking charge, and that's where I let go. However, having said this, we must understand that if I didn't do everything I could have done, and things didn't happen as I hoped they would have, but I didn't fully exhaust my responsibility, then I'm not actually able to say, hey, I did my best. Because you didn't. I fulfilled my duty. Not really. If you did something, you did it well, made it better than somebody else could have done it, but you didn't do it as good as you could have done it, then you didn't fulfill your responsibility. It's as simple as that. We're not in a race with our neighbors. We're not measured against their successes or failures. We're in a race with ourselves. Someday we'll stand before God and there'll be the person we could have been and the person we became. And that's the benchmark of our judgment. So when we talk about this idea of a person doing the best that he or she can, one really has to do the best that you're able. As the Marpel Nefesh puts it, he says, the Gemara Maisa, the end result, that God should aid and assist. He should help us. We had a good intention. We wanted to do the right thing. We made every effort. Now we have to pray and hope that Hashem will give us the privilege of it actually happening. So here's something very interesting. If a person tries to commit a sin, but doesn't succeed, is it still an act of rebelliousness? Is it still an act of wickedness? So consider this. And this is just, just one, one example, but you know, it's, a, it's an example. There's a negative mitzvah in the Torah. In the Rambam system, it, I see Michal David is asking, how does this relate to Yogaiti? Uh, how does it relate to Yogaiti? Yogaiti is the concept of us trying our best and only then succeeding. It relates to Yogaiti in that Hashem only asks us to do our best, and if we do our best, it is impossible that we are not successful. What does success look like? Whatever God wants it to look like. But if you did your best, then you are successful in your service to Hashem. You may not be successful by the benchmark of the business world or the professional world, but you're successful in Hashem's eyes because your mission, your goal, the reason that you were created was accomplished. That's success. So along those lines, Maimonides, the great Rambam, wrote a book of mitzvot. And in the book of mitzvot, he enumerates the specific commandments, the things God wants us to do and engage in. There are 248 of those and 365 of the negative mitzvot. In the Rambam system, mitzvah number 300 of the negative mitzvahs is assault and battery. One is not permitted to assault their fellow. Where do we derive this from? from a person who's a convicted criminal, who is going to be caned or whipped by the court, but we are not permitted to give him an additional stripe. Because as long as the sentence is being carried out, then it's the right thing to do. A mitzvah, if you will. But the moment the sentence is complete, You're not allowed to strike him. If you're not allowed to strike a person who a moment ago was a mitzvah to strike, and it's a violation of a sin if you strike him one additional time, it's self-understood that one may not strike their fellow, ever. 
without just cause. And the Raman finishes off with the following words. He says, Our sages tell us in the Gemara, in Mesechet Sanhedrin, this is found on page 58, side B, Kol hamagbiya yado al Anybody who raises a hand to strike their fellow, lahakoto, nikra rosha. The Torah calls that person wicked, an evil person. How do we know that? Where does the Torah call a person who raises a hand wicked? In the very second chapter of the book of Exodus, verse 13, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, comes upon two of his fellow Jews, Hebrews. Their names are Datan and Aviram. They are not nice people. And one raised a hand to strike his fellow. And Moshe Rabbeinu exclaims, Rasha! He says to the wicked person, Lama Sakariyecha. Moshe says to the wicked person, why would you strike your fellow? So, so the Rebbe asks a famous question. And the Rebbe's question is, because somebody intended to do something bad, they're called wicked? They didn't, they didn't do the sin. What if a person says, I'm going to eat non-kosher food now? And their food happens to be kosher. Did he violate the sin of eating non-kosher food? He intended to eat non-kosher. He didn't eat the non-kosher food. The food happened to be kosher. Could you call that a sin? Objectively, not really. The Rebbe says, where's, where's, how'd you get wicked? You get wicked just because you had a bad thought, a bad intention? And the Rebbe says the following. A human being was created by God for a mission and a purpose in the language of our sages, Ani Lonevreti. I was not created save Ella Leshamesh et Koni to serve my master. I'm created to serve Hashem. So are you. We're all created to serve Hashem. Not only does that refer to us in the totality of our corporeal iteration, but it refers to the details of our corporeal iteration, the details of our body. God gave me fingers, ears, eyes, and a nose so that I might fulfill a destiny, a mission. There's a mandate that God gave us. Why did God give us hands? The answer is, He gave us hands for us to perform mitzvot with. With a hand, you can embrace you can console, you can uplift. You can comfort and you can give somebody who is needy. With a hand, you can light Shabbat candles, affix a mezuzah, and put on tefillin. There are lots of mitzvahs you can do with your hands. More mitzvahs you can do with your hands than with your feet. But of course, running to do a mitzvah or walking to shul on Shabbat, well, that's, that's a mitzvah. And that's very difficult to do with your hands. You'll forgive me for sharing a bad joke. They tell a story of a guy who walks into a bar on his hands. So the bartender says, can I help you, sir? Why don't you uh, walk on your feet? He says, I took an oath I wouldn't walk into a bar. People walk on their hands. I mean, it's like an acrobatic trick. That, that, that's not why hands were created per se. Maybe if somebody walks on his hands and through this he's entertaining lonely, sad people, that might be a mitzvah too. But generally speaking, that's not the typical thing we think of as hands. Maybe, maybe. But regardless of how you use your hands, the common denominator must be you use them for something positive, for something holy, for something godly. Here, a person raised his hand and tried to throw a punch. He wanted to harm somebody else. He used his hands to harm somebody else. If you use your hands to harm somebody else, whether or not you succeeded in landing the punch or you threw a punch and missed, you use the hand to do something against the will of Hashem. That's a problem that makes you a Russian. No, you won't be paying a fine for striking a person and causing damages, but you will be called by Torah Russia because you used the gift of your hands to behave 
in a wicked and rebellious fashion. So this is just like an, an example of what we're talking about. Yeah, we are responsible for the things we do. Because God gave us wherewithal so that we might use our corporeal reality to do good things. And when we use the things that we've been given in a negative way, that's awful. That's a terrible thing. It's a violation of our very, if you will, right to exist. We undermine the existential reality of who we are by behaving in an ungodly way. Okay, so, so all of this, the actual results are in Hashem's hands, not in our hands. Suppose a person purchased a beautiful mezuzah, spent a lot of money, and he was very careful about affixing the mezuzah, and he finds out many years later that the mezuzah that he purchased was not kosher because somebody did something unscrupulous and he never could have known. I mean, on a technical level, he didn't have a mezuzah on the door. There was a, a terrible story in the early 80s where many, many thousands of pairs of tefillin were not kosher. And, and somebody, some, somebody found out or figured out some, something was being done wrong. And as, as, as people remember at the time, there were, there were people, grown-ups, who had been wearing tefillin from the day of their bar mitzvah. Now they're in their 20s. And they realized they had never, ever fulfilled a mitzvah even once in their life. And they wept. People were so heartbroken. They didn't do anything wrong. They took all the precautions. Unfortunately, Sometimes we don't have the privilege. So as long as we're trying to do our best, we can rely on Hashem for the rest. And we don't have to walk around feeling guilty. Because we did our part. That's the meaning of Gemar Maiseha Avayda. But Rabbeinu Bachaya is not satisfied to leave us with one sentence. He interjects a second sentence. And the second sentence is, we cannot absolve ourselves. We can't say, I'm not taking charge anymore. I'm letting go. Unless we took charge properly up until this point. It has to come after choosing. One has to choose to do the right thing. Choice is the big buzzword. The main ingredient in righteousness of the opposite is choice. We're pro-choice. Positive choices. Choosing to serve Hashem. Animals can't choose. They simply follow their nature. Their behavior is reflexive. A human being can choose. It doesn't mean a human being will not have cravings or urges to do the wrong thing, but you can choose to do the right thing. For such is the purview that God has granted humanity. So if you chose, and you chose believe Shalom, you chose in a wholehearted fashion, and it wasn't just wholehearted, it was Neman, it was genuine and sincere. And after choosing wholeheartedly, sincerely, there was a haskama, there was a resolution, you resolved, and there was a heshtadlas, there was an effort expended, and it was a pure-hearted effort. Not a half-hearted effort. A pure-hearted effort. Not just to go through the motions. You really, really tried. And you did it, the Chavana, the Shmagadol, you did it for the right reasons. At that point, you can stop taking control and let go. At that point. Let's talk about this sentence. Let's try and understand it now. The commentary known as Paslechem says, what does wholeheartedness look like? What does it mean to choose believe Shalom with a whole heart? I love this. 
He says, it means after you chose with a whole heart and not with a sense of laziness or lethargy. Not with laziness. So a person who doesn't really care, who doesn't really want to make the effort, but he wants to say he made the effort, makes a half-hearted effort. So I, 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 I did it. Well, kind of. Half-heartedly. Yeah, that doesn't work. Because if Hashem gave you a heart to make the effort to, if you were supposed to invest yourself, but you didn't invest yourself, so of course you're culpable, you're responsible for the lack of success. Had you made a wholehearted effort, things might have been different. You know, in, the, in this uh, province, if you want to bring help, and it's very popular in this neighborhood for people to bring in help from the Philippines. I don't know why, but that's, that's how it is. So, Canadian law says that you can't just bring in or sponsor somebody from a foreign country. And many of these young ladies want to leave the Philippines. They want to come to Canada. So they're, they're prepared to do housework and help with the children. And somebody has to sponsor them. But the law is that you first had to try to hire a local, a Canadian citizen. So, there's a whole business called the nanny business and 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 basically they, they go through the motions they make half-hearted efforts or less because they know what they want to do the people want help from the philippines so they'll put they have to put an ad in the newspaper they don't make it look very appealing and they don't put it in a very prominent place it's not as if they really tried but the law says you have to try Okay, we tried. You actually submit the paperwork. You have to, you, you make the, you put the ad in the paper. Say, I don't know, I put an ad in the paper. Nobody called the number. Oh, in that case, I guess there's nobody available to do the job. You may now sponsor a foreign worker. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that it's impossible that it's actually true, that there isn't anybody local who is willing and able just saying that those efforts aren't sincere and they're half-hearted so half-hearted and sincere sound the same and in that case why does Rabbeinu Bachaya or Rabbi Yehuda Ibn Tibbin who was his translator who I'm absolutely certain didn't create his own verbiage he was very faithful to the translator this is the most famous translator of, of, of that period of time so he chose to translate this as believe sholem vineman. No extra words there. Wholeheartedly and sincere and genuine. So the Paslechem maintains that the idea, the idea, thank you for everybody who liked the funny joke. The idea is that heder pnia, without what we call an ulterior motive. Sometimes people do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And when you do the right thing for the wrong reasons, oftentimes you will fail because if you did the right thing for the right reason, if you didn't have an ulterior motive, somehow people would have responded differently. People inherently, they smell that there's an ulterior motive. They, they have a sense that this isn't genuine. Somebody comes to you and says, I, I want to help you, or you know, would you like to join me? You know that they're not sincere. You know it's not genuine. So you don't respond. Had you been genuine, had you really meant it, had you really been sincere, even if it was a wholehearted effort, it was a wholehearted effort for an ulterior, ulterior motive. That doesn't work either. And that, says the Paslechem, is the meaning of what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says. If you're going to do it, you have to do it. And you have to do it absolutely. Every fiber, every ounce of your being has got to be invested for you to be able to say, I took control, now I let go. 
The Ned of our Kodesh has a fascinating way of understanding the words of Rabbeinu Bachaya. I mean, clearly, these, these sages who lived centuries ago, giants, Torah giants, would be like a, a pygmy, a mouse next to these people. They believed that Rabbeinu Bachaya's words were worthy of study. They wrote these commentaries on them. So the Ned of Kodesh says, this is phenomenal. He says like this. He says, you can't let go. You have no right to say, I did my part. I'm going to leave it in God's hands unless three things happened. And he paraphrases from the scripture. He says, Im If there were three things not done to the situation. And if these three things can't be ascertained if they weren't in fact done this is not called the act of service to Hashem from which you are now absolved you know parenthetically there's a there's a blessing that's recited at the Torah when a bar mitzvah boy has his first aliyah so He's privileged to have a father. The father is there. And the father says, Baruch Shepatrani Meonesh Thank God I'm no longer on the hook. I'm no longer culpable. If this kid does something bad, he is going to be responsible from now on. Because I've, I've done my part. I've raised him to bar mitzvah. He's a man. He's got to take responsibility for himself now. Now, you might notice, if you know the syntax of a blessing, I didn't say, Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu Melech HaOlam. Some people say it that way. We don't. Why? I'll tell you why. Because there are far and few people who can actually say, I've done everything in my power to raise my children right. From this point and onward, it's their responsibility. If I didn't raise my children well enough, I'm still responsible. Had I invested myself more genuinely, more wholeheartedly, more fully, there may well have been different results. But sadly, I wasn't around. A person was too busy invested in his or her career. A person was too busy getting distracted by other things. It is said that tzaddikim, purely righteous parents, can make a blessing like this. Says the Neder Bakodesh, Rabbeinu Bachaya has reached a very, very critical point here. He's about to say, you can let go. So he has to be careful and he has to make sure you understand that you can't just let go because, because the whole point of the exercise was that you're not able to let go and you are responsible when it comes to Avodat Hashem, the only time you can let go is when you did your darnest in every way. Then, at that point, Betochen begins. Okay, he says, what's the three things? He says, number one, Bechira, free choice, which we've been granted by God. It's the greatest gift that God grants humanity. Free choice, it's the thing of which we manufacture righteousness, goodness, piety. It comes from choices we make. If somebody is charitable because that's his or her nature, I mean, it's nice you're being charitable, but that's not really a, a, a charitable person in the fullest sense. A charitable person is the person who toils with themselves, works with themselves, and, and overcomes their own greed and selfishness and truly identifies with the pain and the need and deprivation of another. Otherwise, the person who's giving isn't really giving. They're getting. They're getting fulfillment. They're getting honor. They're getting glory. Maybe they feel getting control of other people. I know some giving people, but they aren't really that giving because they always expect something in return. Be it honor or homage or control, they expect something in return. You know that that's not giving. There's an ulterior motive there. 
So Nader Bakredish says, Rabbeinu Bachai is very clear. That's not called doing your best. The Bechira, the choice, has to be a wholehearted choice. And the choice begins, he says, in the mind. You decide. You, you come, you think about this, and you say, yes, I'm, I'm going to do this. And then he says, after you move from the level of consciousness, or machshava, then he says, we reach a point of what is called not contemplation, not on a cerebral level to mentally make the choice, but to translate that choice into resolve. And the Nedda Bakredish uses interesting language. He says, Nikra bil yishuv hadas. We call that a settling of the mind. So if somebody makes a decision hastily, impetuously, under duress, is, is that really the kind of decision for which a person can take credit? Can you really call that a choice well made? Or can you say the person get overwhelmed? Here's a fascinating example. The Medrash tells us that when Abraham was told to take Isaac to the Akedah, it says it wasn't until Bayom HaShlishi, only on the third day does God reveal the location, the site, Mount Moriah. And the question our sages ask is, why didn't God tell Avraham Avinu immediately where this is going to be? And the answer was, it was a test. It was designed to demonstrate Avram Avinu's conviction, his dedication, his devotion to God. So if Avram Avinu was asked to do something now and he immediately responds, that visceral response isn't necessarily a, a sign of conviction. It isn't in, indicative of devotion. It just might say he got overwhelmed. And then he said, what did I just do? I can't believe I just did that. So, so it says God makes sure that this is like a, a slow, laborious process. Now, Avraham has three days to think about this and continue to follow through with the resolve, yes, I'm going to do this. Then it's meaningful. It has become demonstrable that Avraham Avinu's devotion to God is not selfish, but selfless. So this is called Yishuv Hadas. And I, I would venture to say that when we talk about Machshava, we talk about thought, we talk about intellectual, cerebral activity, we talk about something objective. So we have Chachma, which is the beginnings of an idea, the epiphany moment. And then we build or develop that idea, the frame of the idea, which is called Bina in the language of Kabbalah. So Chachma and Bina, they operate together because every idea has some way in which it's articulated. It's like the wick for the flame. Without a, without a wick and a container or with, with fuel, the flame can't be kindled. So you have the, the kindling of the flame, but you have something to hold the flame. So I have an idea, but the idea has an expression, a, a metaphor, a parable, a frame that holds or conveys the idea. But it's, it's kind of objective. And then I have to reach a point where I'm going to transition from objectivity into a subjective thing. Those are called decisions. Some people have a hard time making decisions. They can think about things all day. They can't make decisions. They lack resolve. Mentally, cerebrally, they kind of know this is the right thing to do. They, 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 they want to do those things, but, but it doesn't happen because they're missing the das. Das is when it becomes like a, like a bias. Das is when it becomes a decision. Das is the key. Das is the point of transition where it goes from objective reality to subjective reality. It's my opinion. It's what I've resolved to do. So that's what he says. That's what the Nedda B'Kadosh That's Haskama. That's the Hishtadlus. And that Hishtadlus has to be that those efforts have to be made bebor levov. They have to be made with pure, pure heart, not for an ulterior motive. And then, and then he says we move into the next step. And the next step is kavona. Kavona means intention. And the intention has to be for a holy purpose. The Toi Valavonain says something quite fascinating about intentions. He says, you must know 
that as a rule in Judaism, we always look at the intentions. And he says you can see this in a very pronounced way. If you look in the Gemara Masechet Nazir, on page 23, side B, the Gemara makes a shocking statement. Doing the wrong thing for the right reason is greater than doing the right thing for the wrong reason. That's a pretty powerful statement. What exactly does it mean? Well, to take it from the Chachma level and to put it into, I guess what you would call a Bina, to, to comprehend this, Let's take a look at the Gemara. I want, I want, I want to share the Gemara, and, I, and, and specifically, I want to share the commentary of the Maharal of Prague on this Gemara. When we, when we, because it's, I think that will, will help crystallize and, and explain things. So the Gemara in Daf Chav Gimel, Mesechus Nazar says, Amar of Nachum Bayitzchak, Nachum Bayitzchak taught, Gedoyla Aveda Lishma, a sin which is done Lishma is. Greater than a mitzvah, greater than a mitzvah which is done for the wrong reasons. The commentary that Peter says, sorry, Aveda Lishma. What does this mean? Kilomar, it means Lishem Mitzvah. I'm doing a sin as an act of righteousness. I'm doing a sin, I'm doing a bad thing for a good reason. What does that mean? What does it mean to do a, a sin for a mitzvah? So very interestingly, the, the, the Mepharshim talk about this and they're, they're, they're bothered by the language of, of the pirush. The commentary Be'er Sheva says, it's not l'shem mitzvah, it's not for the sake of a mitzvah, it's an avera, it's a, it's a transgression. But I'm doing it for God's sake. What's a... An example of this? An example of this is when the brutal oppressor of the Jewish people, a king named Caesarea, a general named Caesarea, was fleeing. He was propositioned by a woman named Ya'al. And Ya'al actually, according to the Gemara here, ends up bedding him down no less than seven times and I'll leave that your, your imagination. And he does it to, quote, tire him out. And then he's exhausted after all his antics and activities. And he says, he says, uh, if anybody comes looking for me, I'm not here. She says, of course. And he falls into a deep sleep. She also gave him uh, milk. He's very thirsty. Milk is supposed to make you drowsy. And when he's sleeping, she drives a peg through his temple and she saves the nation of Israel. And the Gemara says about this, she did a sin. She's a married woman sleeping with somebody else. Why'd she do it? Because she was a licentious individual? She did it for the purest of motives. She did it to save the lives of others. And she saved the lives of thousands. So that's called an Avera. It's definitely a transgression. Objectively speaking, this is a sin. And yet, we say, She's praised in the Bible. We say, even more so than the matriarchs. Because she did a bad thing, a sinful thing, for a saintly purpose. So the Gemara asks, Really? I mean, you, you're going to tell me that uh, a, a mitzvah done for the wrong reason is, is, is not as great as a sin done for, the, for a right reason? Oh, by the way, I was talking about this business of whether it's for God's sake. So the Beersheva says it should be lishmo, for God's sake. Well, and why does it say lishmo? Lishmo means for its sake. So the Beersheva suggests that what, what's, driving, what's driving the piroshes to say that, let's say, Yal bedded this guy down for God's sake, mm. I mean, like, it's like, it doesn't, doesn't, 
It doesn't sound nice. So, for the sake of a mitzvah, for the sake of a mitzvah, it sounds cleaner, so to speak. But that's what we're talking about. So the Gemara says, how could we say this? A person should always do a mitzvah. Regardless of whether it's for the right reason or wrong reason, do a mitzvah. And as long as you do a mitzvah, which is the right thing, it'll bring you to do a mitzvah for the right reason. So the Gemara says, it doesn't say that an Avera, a sin, for the right reason, brings to a mitzvah. So, how are you so sure that's greater? So the Gemara says, Ela say, mitzvah shalolishma, a mitzvah that's done for the wrong reason is as good as a sin done for the right reason. As the Pirush says, Alma, the mitzvah shalolishma, a mitzvah for the wrong reasons is chashivi, diliyadei mitzvah, himeviyeh, brings you to the hands of a mitzvah. And the answer the Gemara says is, it is Avera, Ela, Eima, Gedola, Avera, Lishma, Mi Mitzvah, Shalol, Lishma, means Shtehem, Shavot. So the Maharal of Prague in Nesiv Olam, Nesiv Olam in, in, the, in the pathway called Ahavat Hashem, in the second chapter, he brings down this Gemara, he analyzes it, and he says, each one has a merit that the other doesn't. The mitzvah done for the wrong reasons, without kavanah, that mitzvah will bring to a mitzvah. So there's something special. Not inherently, but in what it brings to. Whereas the avera is inherently done for a holy purpose, so it is inherently good, but it won't bring to anything else, because in the end it's a sin. Sins don't bring to good things. At any rate... The point that's being made here by the Teva Levon, and a very powerful point, a salient point is, that intention has a lot to do with reality. It's a big difference. You look at two people, both doing exactly the same thing, one for a holy intention, and one for a sinful intention, and the intention makes all the difference. We have an example of this in, in, in the modern-day criminal court, where a jury has to decide if there was intent. That's the difference between somebody being convicted of murder or manslaughter or negligence. And there's an enormous difference in the sentencing. I mean, factually speaking, it's the same action. Yeah. But what was the intention? In halacha, we need to have witnesses and a warning and an acknowledgement of the warning to get a conviction. And otherwise, we can, we'll never know. And if you don't know with certainty whether there was intention it's not prosecutable so intention has a lot to do with it and that's why the Tova Levonon says we, we, we conclude by saying that you can't let go unless you had the holiest and the purest of intentions now to be sure None of us should be letting go anytime soon. <laughs> because to do something belief shalom, to do something wholeheartedly and sincerely, genuinely, and to resolve to do it, and to do it for the purest of intentions, and then I said, that's it. That's it. I did everything I could. But if you didn't do it that way, then you still have some culpability. Then the Bakredish says, why do we focus so much on intention? And this is, this is just stupendous what he says, you know. He says, if a person doesn't do something holy for the right reason, he does it for uh, another reason. Something else was driving him. He says, in that case, if something else was driving him, then this person is in a situation where he cannot claim to have done his or her best. He says, A person has to be doing this in the sincerest, the most genuine and intentful way. And his heart has to be pure, he says, so that there is no false or counterfeit intentions. 
He's not looking to benefit or pleasure himself. He's not looking for anything other than the right thing to do. And the Medha Bar-Kodesh goes on to say that a mitzvah is metaphorized as a lavush, as a garment. And he brilliantly illustrates the concept of mitzvot referred to by the prophet Isaiah in the 64th chapter in verse 5 as sometimes mitzvot being or garments being tattered or soiled. And he says the intention of the prophet here is that the malbush hakodesh, that the holy garment, the mitzvah is the garment. We have three garments, garments of the soul. Altadeva tells us in the third chapter of Tanya, they are machshava, dibur, and maisa. Thought, the power to articulate, and action. Those are the garments of the soul. They're like garments because you can take them off or put them on. You can choose to think and ruminate about something or choose to direct your mind elsewhere. You can choose to speak about something or choose not to. And of course you can choose to do something or choose to do something else. That's a choice we make. If it's a mitzvah, it's a choice we make. Because if it's not a choice we're capable of making, God can't give us a mitzvah. By the way, people who are mentally incapable of making choices, heaven forfend, are exempt from mitzvahs. Just like the insanity plea. The person says, he's not prosecutable. We may have to lock him up in a, in a special hospital to protect innocent lives, but you can't convict a person who isn't capable of understanding the severity of his or her choices. So he says, this garment, this malbush kodosh, this holy garment that we, what we are actually uh, dressing our neshamotim. This is like straight out of Perik Dal Tanya, the fourth chapter of Tanya. He says, let's talk about a, like, an act of charity, an act of, of righteousness, an act of sharing and caring and giving to others. But he says, it's a holy garment. But it's, it's torn. It's tattered. It's not whole. Why? Why? Because you didn't really care about that person. You cared about how you would be perceived. You cared about the benefits you might accrue. You cared about the fact that you'd be able to control that person after because, hey, they needed me. You cared about the fact that you would be able to pat yourselves on the back and feel good about yourself. That wasn't an act of subservience. It wasn't an act of service. It wasn't an act of devotion. It was an act of selfishness. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a more refined selfishness. It's nicer than the person who strikes and beats and robs and steals from other people because he or she wants to do whatever they want. But still selfish. And that's not nice. So the garment is torn. And he says, because the garment is torn, it's possible that unhealthy elements, what he calls chitzonim, can attach themselves in between the folds or the rips, the tears. And he says, if there's a lack of sincerity, a lack of genuine care and concern, what happens is it even affects the body itself. And he metaphorizes, he says, when you have a torn coat and it's very cold outside, then the parts of the body that are exposed because the coat is torn are going to get damaged too. So he says it's not only the garment, it's not only the mitzvah that's damaged, the soul itself is damaged by the lack of sincerity because it needs these garments. As is spoken about in so many places in Hasidus, we're each given a certain amount of time and a certain amount of wherewithal and we need the garments, we need the mitzvahs to be able to warm and protect our souls. And this, says the Nedabar Kredush, this is what we're talking about. So, so, how many people can say, oh yeah, yeah, I, I check, check, check. I did all those things. When you do all those things, then you can let go. Then you can say, I am indeed finished taking control. I let go, and I put it in Hashem's hands. 
And not only do we put it in Hashem's hands, but that's when we begin to pray. Don't pray when there's something to do. Do what you're supposed to do. And when you're finished doing everything you possibly can, then you pray. What does that prayer look like? Well, this is something with Hashem's help. We will continue in our next episode. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you found this informative and even inspirational. And may we keep trying. May we keep striving. May we keep doing the best we can, for real. And may Hashem bless those efforts with success. If you haven't yet, please subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. And I look forward to continuing to share these incredible insights together with you. And hopefully, as a result of the efforts we make, the sincere, wholehearted, intentful efforts we make, we will finally merit the coming of Mashiach, the Meira, will be a Amen. Thanks for joining.